This morning, if you would, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The second epistle to the church at Corinth. And we're going to look at chapter 4. And we're going to go all the way down to the end. We'll read the whole chapter here. We've been talking about and been in a series on striving. Obviously, Lent is a time where we strive against the flesh in order to live uh, in the Spirit. And as you've been fasting and giving up things and hopefully doing acts of goodness as well on top of that, I want to join in now and talk about today suffering. Striving in suffering. Notice these words from the Apostle Paul who you could say is a professional at suffering in the Bible. Notice his words here in chapter 4 to the Corinthians, whom he loved very deeply. Therefore, since God in His mercy has given us this new way, we never give up. We reject all shameful deeds and underhanded methods. We don't try to trick anyone or distort the Word of God. We tell the truth before God, and all who are honest know this. If the good news we preach is hidden behind a veil, it is hidden only from people who are perishing. Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. You see, we don't go around preaching about ourselves. We preach that Christ Jesus is Lord, and we ourselves are your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let there be light in the darkness has made this light shine in our hearts so we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. We now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. We are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. Yes, we live under constant danger of death because we serve Jesus, so that the life of Jesus will be evident in our dying bodies. So we live in the face of death, but this has resulted in eternal life for you. But we continue to preach because we have the same kind of faith the psalmist had when he said, quote, I believed in God, so I spoke. End quote. We know that God, who raised the Lord Jesus, will also raise us with Jesus and present us to Himself together with you. 
All of this is for your benefit. And as God's grace reaches more and more people, there will be great thanksgiving and God will receive more and more glory. That is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet, they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen, for the things we see now will soon be gone. But the things we cannot see will last forever. Let us pray. Jesus, we thank You for Your most holy Word. Would You make it a word to us now? by the power of Your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you follow Jesus, a cross awaits you. You will suffer. The prophecy of suffering not only is found in the Old Testament, not only is found out of the mouth of Jesus Himself, but is also found in the New Testament. If you follow Jesus, a cross awaits you. You will suffer. (laughs) Now that doesn't uh, sound like good news. That's not the best way to really start a sermon or a conversation. And yet the Scripture is very clear that we are to count the cost before we sign up with Jesus. Just as you would count the cost before you start a building project, so too, this is greater than a building. This is your life. And you must count the cost. And the cost is going to be your life. Interesting here, (laughs) 2 Corinthians 4 is actually... Literarily, for those of you who are interested in that, a chiasm, which is probably not a word you really throw around often. Uh, the best way and the easiest way to describe it is like a sandwich. You build toward the center. In a, in a, in a chiastic form, the center is the, is the real meat, and the rest is the, the lettuce and the tomatoes and the cucumber, whatever else you like on your sandwich, all the way out to the outer edges. This is what Paul does. He purposefully uses this literary device to punch home this idea of suffering here in 1 Corinthians. Briefly, I can show you exactly what I mean. You can just look there at your text and see it very clearly. He begins in verse 1. We never give up. It's his main point in the first two verses. Then verses 3 through 6 deal with preaching. Then he moves to our weakness in verse 7, that we are but fragile little clay jars, and yet we contain in us something treasured. And then he goes to the real meat, which is through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be also seen in our bodies. 
That's the real meat. Then he starts backing it out to the things he's already said, which is back to weakness. So he says, yes, we're in constant danger because we serve Jesus. We're in the face of death because we serve Jesus. Then he goes back to preaching. Continuing to back out here. But we continue to preach because we have the same kind of faith as the psalmist. He goes back to the Old Testament. And then he goes back to his original thought at the very beginning, which we should now understand in new light, which is never give up. Verse 16. That though in our bodies we are dying, our spirits are being renewed. And if our spirits are being renewed, it will carry along one day our body. So our body's breaking down, but the internals, which we cannot see, we can see ourselves getting older, weaker, ridden with cancer or whatever else ails us, and yet inwardly we're being renewed. And inwardly what we can't see will one day drag along our body in the resurrection. (laughs) And so he concludes chapter 4. And so I want to focus this morning on the meat of chapter 4, which is suffering, and only through suffering will we reach a glorified state with Jesus Christ. The resurrection. Because truly to be resurrected, you must first die. If you want to be like Jesus... And we all would say, oh, absolutely. And the world's religions would say, absolutely. He was a great teacher. He had a lot of good things to share. There's really nothing faulty that you can find with Jesus. Everyone wants to be like Jesus until they start looking at His teachings. Jesus, who is God, suffered and died. That's kind of the crescendo of His ministry. And yet we often forget that part Love, forgiveness, maybe we can deal with that. But losing yourself, giving up your life, that's a little much. But truly, in order to love and in order to forgive, you must die to what you want. To what I want. Isn't that the thing that holds us most away from one another? It's my way. It's my own things that I feel I've been cheated from. Or limited by. And so we assert ourselves and we sin. So, what is suffering? It's something we all know and yet sometimes it's hard to grapple with. Seems like the things that are closest to us, they're the ones most hard to define, aren't they? We feel like the co worker at work, oh yeah, I know him. He's like this and that, and I can tell you all about him. But if I ask you about your wife, you have a more difficult time explaining to me her or your husband him. Someone says, who is Jessica? I I don't even know where to begin because she's so close to me. It's more complex than just a simple, cheap little answer. So too is suffering. So too is the problem of evil. So too are our questions about evil, about death, about suffering. Don't they rush at us when the crisis hits? Why? Why me? Why them? You've said it just as much as I have. Maybe more. Suffering, definitionally, is 
a lack or limitation or a distortion of what is good. Think of cancer. It is a distortion of regular cellular activity. Think of when you feel like you suffer because someone breaks your heart or makes fun of you. It's a lack. It's a limitation that you've placed on yourself or someone has placed on you. And we suffer in those moments. We suffer because we we know how things should work and they are not working in that way. And so we suffer. My kids are a great example of this if you ever want to come hang out with us. Daddy, we want to get ice cream. We haven't eaten dinner yet. Oh man, no, no, no. They're suffering. Why? Because of a lack. Isn't that what we do when we get the keeping up with the Joneses syndrome? Oh, so and so got a new car. (laughs) They always get something new. And then a root of bitterness begins to spring up in us and we look at our car in a different light. Our car was fine 20 minutes ago. (laughs) And truthfully, still is fine. Except for that jealousy, that lack, that limitation. And we, we feel like we're suffering. Now there's greater degrees of suffering. Suffering still is suffering to the person no matter if it's big to you or not. Someone who's struggling financially may be suffering. Someone who is about to die from cancer may be suffering. And you think the guy with cancer has it harder, but this person feels as if they have it hard. And that's a reality. And this is why sometimes inward suffering is more difficult than physical suffering. You know, things like depression. Things like envy, things like hatred, things like unforgiveness. These things are in here and I can't see them. I can see you physically struggling. I cannot see you inside of here. I can't see your soul. And so the person who isn't deeply physically struggling, it could be you, it could be me. This is why all of a sudden most suicides, most things that happen, and all of a sudden you're saying, what happened? It was an internal struggle that no one ever saw. Those are the most dangerous, aren't they? The ones we try to suppress. The ones we try to push down and act as if they are not there the ones we try to hide from, and that too is suffering. That too is an evil. You ever notice how when people rob or do something bad, they don't really like to be on camera? They try to prevent that from happening by wearing masks. You know, they don't don't want you to see what they're doing that is bad. We do the same thing, don't we? And because of that sin, because of that internal struggle, we put a mask on. And so we come here and we're, hi, how's it going? Great. And inside, we're dying inside. You've been there. I've been there. And so what I'm saying is simply, the degrees of suffering may be different to some of us, but it's still suffering. It's still suffering. Interestingly too, 
suffering and is, is inextricably connected to evil. So when we suffer, we feel like there's an evil done, right? We feel like it's not right when we don't have enough food or when we don't have enough supplies or when we're not loved or when we're not taken care of. We feel there's been a great evil because of a lack of need, a lack of supply. And we think sometimes that evil exists in the world in such a way as good does. And it doesn't. Evil is a lack of good. It's a spoiling of the good. In other words, all evil, which produces suffering, is really not, so to speak, itself. It's not independent as if there were evil and good warring against one another. There's truly only God who is good... And yet, when sin enters the world, in our hearts, even our world, what we find is a lack, not of ourself, but instead a lack of God, who is good. A lack of a good thing. So when cancer comes, we know that's not good. We know that's bad. And so we don't believe like the Taoists in an eternal yin and yang. You know, black and white equally independent of one another in the world. Rather, God is going to win. Sin is this lack. You say, well, that's, that's a little confusing, and it is. But it's not if you begin to look at our world. You can't turn on darkness. Do you know that? I can't bring you darkness. Here's a, here's a little bit of darkness here. If you'll share that, it'll begin to spread. You can with light. I can bring you a light that expels the darkness. I can't bring you darkness. The only way you get darkness is by cutting off the light. A lack, again. A hole, like a hole in my shirt for a button, is a lack of fabric. This is what we mean when we talk about evil. It's a real thing. There's a real such thing as a hole. You can trip in it. You can throw a button through it. And yet, it's a lack of what is good. It's not dependent upon, or sorry, it is dependent upon the good. It's not independent by itself, powerful in its own means. And so, what that means for us is that when you trace the cord back to the wall, guess who's there? It's God. So this question of evil inevitably leads back to God, which is why in our suffering, in those moments, when, when, when death comes to our door, when, when we get the knock on our door, when we get the phone call, get the medical results... It's why we ask God why. We don't turn to the trees and say, What the heck? What's wrong with you? We don't look up at the clouds and say, What are you doing to me? We don't look down at the ground and ask them. Instead, we ask God. We turn to God in anger. Because He's the one who originally created us. He's the one who gives us life. And truly, it is connected to God. And yet there needs to be a distinction with this that the Hebrews didn't seem to make, but the Greeks later will make, and the New Testament begins to make. In the Old Testament, you don't have a word that is independent of evil for suffering. In other words, suffering and evil are the same thing. When you suffer, that's an evil for the Hebrew. Oh yeah, same thing. So if God brings suffering, then God brings evil. Which is often troubling to us, isn't it? Because we said to ourselves, Surely God is not the author of evil, which He's not. So on the one hand, the Hebrew in the Old Testament says, God is not the author of evil. And on the other hand, God is the author of evil. 
So how do you deal with that? You deal with it in first and second causes. God is the first cause of everything, and yet secondary causes He allows to play themselves out in our world. Now here's a good example of this. Back in the 50s, in the scourge of polio, which I wasn't around for, but I've read about, many people were paralyzed by this disease. And until Dr. Jonas Salk developed a a vaccination for this disease to eradicate it, uh, people really suffered. People died. Many people. And so he whips up this vaccine and begins to produce it. It's produced all over the world and does great healing, great good in our world. Until a batch was cooked in, uh, in, in California. And in this batch, people began to take it as a vaccination, give it to their children, and it actually contained polio. And so it began to paralyze people. It began to give them polio rather than save them from it. Now, if he had not created the vaccine, that wouldn't have happened. So he's the first cause in this sense, and yet he's not the cause of the evil that was done from the bad batch of the vaccination. This is how first and second causes begin to work and are played out even in our world. They can be seen clearly. So the Hebrew mindset is, oh yeah, it's all traced back to God. Uh, whereas the Greeks begin to differentiate first and second causes, quite frankly, because of the philosophers, which we needed. So what I want to say to you about that little introduction about suffering is we all know suffering. It's around us. And we all blame God. At some point, we're going to ask Him why. And that's okay. What I'm saying to you is that's okay to ask why. He doesn't mind. He has heard that question before. It's not His first rodeo. And ultimately, He alone knows. (laughs) And so we suffer physically. We suffer spiritually in our lives. And these questions begin to bug us. They begin to tempt us. And the Bible has offered three ways to the question of the meaning of suffering. I want to share those with you. The first is, we suffer because of sin. You know this. In every human heart, for all of time, the idea of justice has been prevalent. You can't live in a society without justice. Every society has had the idea of justice. And yet when it comes to us being the one who is being executed upon as justice, we don't like it, do we? And yet we understand it. We understand that when we do bad, there is a someone coming after us. An authority coming after us. Something bad should happen to us. And this is why when we do something bad and get away with it, we still feel bad. We still feel like something should come down the line later to punish us for our evil. Now, the Hindus call this karma. They don't set it in this life, but in your next life. We Christians believe you only live one life, not multiple transmigrating lives, but rather one life. 
And yet the law of karma is still biblical in the sense that what you sow, you will reap. If you continue to run against God's laws, that'd be like kind of running against the wall. You keep doing that, I don't have to be a seer to tell you that you're going to end up hurt. Not going to fare very well. I mean, you don't have to believe the wall's there. You can believe you're beyond the wall. But ultimately, the wall is there and it's going to hurt for you to keep running into it. And so because of our sin, we suffer. We do things, and in this life, they are connected, cause and effect. So when I do something, that means something for my family. It means something for my church. It means something for my friends. It means something for my job. It means something for my finances. You don't have to believe that it does, but it does. And to make that connection is to see that sin equals suffering. When we sin, we will suffer. And it brings about suffering not only to us, but to others. You know, we would love to contain sin, wouldn't we? Be nice, you know, I'm going to sin, just kind of get my little fix here, and it's not going to mess with anybody else. But that's untrue. It always messes with someone else. You're always using someone else or abusing someone else. Sin is never private. And therefore, as the smartest man in the world besides Jesus said, Solomon, all things will come about. The end of Ecclesiastes, all hidden things will be made known. When we sin, we should be punished, which is why God set up the sacrificial system. Someone must be punished. We know that. We've established justice. We want justice. When we've been done wrong to, we want somebody to come, an authority to come and say, hey, they did something wrong to me. Which is why my kids call, Daddy! So-and-so did this. They're calling on the authorities. And when something happens to us, we call on the authorities. The good news is this. (laughs) The Bible says that He, Jesus, became sin who knew no sin for us and for our redemption. He's taken on the sin problem. And just as with Adam, you have a lot of bad that comes from him, so too now with Jesus, you have a lot of good that comes from Him. And Paul sets up a contrast in Romans 4 and 5, and he says, look, the gift which comes from Jesus is greater than the sin. And we can believe that. If you've sinned, if you've caused people to suffer, which you have, He can forgive you, and He can offer healing to you so that you don't do it again. Praise be to God! You don't have to make people suffer! I don't have to make people suffer if we are found in Him. He suffers for us. Now the second thing. First thing is we suffer because of sin. The second is this. We suffer to rid ourselves of sin. It's a disciplinary action. Now, a lot of this is summed up in the book of Job if you want to go read it. 
There's a greater discussion here which I'd love to get into, but not for time's sake, I won't. Suffering heals, doesn't it? Isn't that what surgery's about? My brother who does many surgeries sometimes doesn't think about uh, the after effects of surgery. You know, he just, oh yeah, we can get in here and fix that thing, you know. Now he's had six surgeries, so he does know what happens afterward, how the pain and after they get the medical block out of you and stuff, it begins to hurt. And during the procedure, you're probably thinking, why did I get myself into this? Why am I doing this? I'm feeling so much pain. And yet, on the other side, you're saying, I'm really thankful for this. I'm really thankful for those guys who pushed me in rehabilitation because now I'm 100%. So Bo, our third son, is running through the house one day and trips and falls into the train table, buses out. No, 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 I'm sorry, that was Baylor. Um, let me back that up and rewind. Uh, Bo is sitting on the edge of a chair and falls off and hits a magazine holder and busts his eye open. There's two people with scars above their eye already, and they're under five. And so we take him to the doctor. Now, he doesn't want to go to the doctor. He doesn't really like the doctor. And he's what, two? He's two years old, and uh, if you know Bob, who is Bo, um, he, he's a stinker head, uh, to say the least. And so he's hurt, he's bleeding, we take him to the doctor, and the doctor says, uh, yep, it's going to take stitches. And we're probably going to have to hold him down. Now, <clears throat> here we are on this little table with this little guy and a needle and, you know, the string and everything else, the sutures and all that good stuff. And they say, you're going to have to really hold him down because we've got to make sure we do a good job. And it's right above his eyeball. I mean, it's right here under his eyebrow. And so you're going to have to really, really bear down, okay? They called in six nurses along with me. I'm 200 pounds. This guy's under 30 pounds uh, lying on a table. And yet he's given us a run for our money, right? I'm laying myself over him trying to hold it. Saying, baby, baby, listen, daddy's right here. Uh, you know, they're trying to help you, buddy. Do you think that helped him? No. No. I got right in his face. I mean, it's all he could see besides the needle. <laughs> and in that moment, you can imagine what he was feeling, which was terror. What he was feeling, which was, Daddy, why are, why are you letting these people hurt me? And... Daddy, who's 200 pounds, is crying because I'm having to hold my little guy down for other people to hurt him. And you can imagine this scene. He's saying, why are you doing this to me? Why? And he's getting angry. And he's crying. And he doesn't understand. And the needle's coming down. But I can see further than him. I know what's going on. And I know how long it'll last. And today he doesn't have a scar that you can really see because I held him down and let other people hurt him. And you say, well, that's a being a bad dad. I'm going to be calling DHR on you. Or you can say I'm a good father. That's your two options in suffering. 
You can say why and you can scream at God. You can get angry with Him. He understands. He'll cry right along with you. He not only suffers for us, but He suffers with us. And He says, baby, just hold on a little bit longer and this will be over. And when you come out on the other side, you'll be healed. You'll be made whole. You'll be fixed. Isn't Jesus the great physician? Suffering rids us of sin. Or it'll turn us bitter. That's your choice. That's your choice. When you're suffering, look into the face of the Father. And what you'll see is a good Father. He too will be right in your face saying, I'm here. I'm with you. I'm hurting with you. But stay with me. We're going to get through this. What did Paul say in 2 Corinthians 4? The suffering we now experience is temporary. But the glory that's being built in us will last forever. Job too saw this. He says, my Redeemer lives. Did you know that Job didn't know Jesus? Jesus had not come and suffered and died yet. Had no clue about any of that stuff and yet he sees a Redeemer. He feels like somebody is going to redeem him from this situation. That may not be in this life. You may be treated bad all of your life, not get what you feel you deserve in life, which ought to die at the cross, by the way. Because now it's not about you. On the cross, it's about Him. When you die to your life, it's not your life any longer. What does Paul say? Now that I am crucified with Christ, it's no longer me that's living, but Christ in me. The problem is we get in front of ourselves We're too smart for our own good. And we take over. And we become bitter. We become bitter at God. People have lost faith because of suffering. You've questioned your faith because of suffering. The third thing is this. Suffering for the sake of others. We suffer in this life for others. I wish I was on that table. I wish I was the one getting stitches. I would have gladly replaced myself with Him. Trust me, I've had stitches plenty of times before. It wouldn't have been that big of a deal. But for Him to be there, it was a big deal. I longed to replace myself with Him. With those we really love in life, we wish we could suffer for them. And that's a trait that's like Jesus, isn't it? Because He's the only one who can suffer for us and it means something. And He does. He does. All of the greatest love stories that have ever been written have had at the core, and you've heard me say this before, sacrificial love. Evaluate it how you want. The reason is because the greatest story ever told is about sacrificial love. It's about the cross. It's about what Jesus has done for us.
Michael Mansour, who would have turned 33 yesterday, at the age of 25, was on a little rooftop in Iraq, a Navy SEAL, one of the top of his class. And a grenade was thrown up on the roof from an unseen position. And he was the only one who was near a door where he could have escaped. He had two teammates up there with him. And instead of saving his life, he chose to give his life. And he jumped on the grenade. It blew up underneath his body, saving his two teammates and destroying his body. He died 30 minutes later. That's sacrificial love. His parents, I, I know, were grieving yesterday on his birthday when he would have, I mean, that's as old as I am. I'm 33 this month. And he gave up his life. And you know there's not one day that goes by that the two guys on that roof don't think of him and thank him. Tough for us to understand, but even more than that sacrifice, Jesus has laid down His life for His friends. You are His friends. In Mark 8, Jesus says very clearly to His disciples, if you want to be My disciple, deny yourself, which we've been doing during Lent. Take up your cross and follow Me. Where did Jesus go when He took up His cross? To Golgotha. To die. We are to give our life so others may live. That's the greatest love story ever told. It's the only way the Gospel will continue to your children, to the world, is if we give up our life, not try to save it. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, used to whisper into his children's ear each night, others, others, others. That others may live. That's the Christian life. If you want to be a Christian, a cross awaits you. You will suffer. Will it be redemptive? Will it be for the salvation of the world? Will it be for healing? It can only because of Jesus. Only because His suffering is redemptive. You say, you never gave me an answer for the meaning of suffering. Jesus is the meaning. Beyond that, I can't help you. Neither does the Bible choose to help us beyond that. Job's answer, he finally... God, come down and give me an answer. God finally comes, but He doesn't give him an answer. He just basically tells him, I'm God. Who are you? God is enough. Isn't that what we're just saying? Jesus 
is enough. Would an answer be really enough for you in the face of a child dying? Is that really going to help? No. Answer's not going to help. Answer's not going to bring them back. Guess what? Jesus can. Jesus will. And He does. And He'll do it for you. He'll bring you back from the dead. He'll bring you out of your suffering. And on the other side, you will rejoice. On the other side, you will then turn around and minister to others who have gone through that same thing. Do you want that or do you want a pity party? Because pity parties continually lead us inward. And inward is not where you find yourself or anything else. You must look upward. You you must look to Jesus. We suffer because Jesus suffered. We're not above our Master. So no matter your lot in life, no matter the cards dealt you, no matter your stage or your circumstances, you must go to the cross. I don't care who you are. You must go to the cross. I don't care what you've done. You must go to the cross. If you follow Jesus, a cross awaits you. You're going to suffer. Why not make it redemptive? Why not make it for Jesus Christ? Why not make it for the sake of the world? Because when the world watches us suffer, they see Jesus. And they'll be saved. Our temporary suffering will only last for a while. But what's being built up in us is for eternity. Jesus is our only answer. He's our friend. And He is good. Amen.